Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault, murder, and mutilation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On February 17, 1887, Silas Hibbs walked along his usual route to work. He was Eddington's local carpenter and a respected member of the small Pennsylvania town. As he strolled, he thought about the pleasant dinner he'd shared with his wife and daughter the night before. But he was jolted out of his reverie by the sight of something strange. A package wrapped in brown paper sat on the bank of his neighbor's pond. It looked like someone had dropped it there accidentally. Silas stepped off the path to check it out. The bundle was large, but when he picked it up, the contents were soft and damp. Curious now, he began to unwrap it. As he peeled away layer after layer, he began to realize the wrapping paper wasn't wet from water, but from blood. Finally, he tore off the last of the paper and nearly screamed at what it revealed. The slimy mass in his hands fell to the ground. He stared at it in shock. It was a human torso. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Last week, we met Hannah Mary Tabs. We detailed her abusive nature, hair-trigger temper, and hostile treatment of family and acquaintances. Then we covered how her affair with a much younger man ended in violence. This week, we'll look at Hannah Mary's gruesome involvement in his death. Then we'll detail the lengths she went to evade justice and pin her crime on someone else. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. On the morning of February 16, 1887, the approximately 24-year-old Wakefield Gaines lay on the floor of a small Philadelphia home, dead. Two people stood over him, his alleged killer, 18-year-old George Wilson, and his ex-lover, 35-year-old Hannah Mary Tabbs. Wilson still held the chair that he'd bashed into Gaines's head. Hannah Mary had watched the entire thing, unwilling to intervene. As far as she was concerned, Wakefield Gaines had gotten what he had coming to him. He'd chosen a younger, prettier, newer woman over Hannah Mary, and she wanted him dead. She was only too happy that Wilson had gone ahead and done the thing she'd wanted to do herself. But the task wasn't finished quite yet. Hannah Mary told Wilson to help her drag Gaines's body into the cellar. It was a messy ordeal, with blood from Gaines's head injury staining the carpet, but they finally got him into the basement. Then, it seems, Hannah Mary sent Wilson away on an errand. She told him to get a meat cleaver. Wilson was well-liked in the neighborhood, but he wasn't terribly bright. Also, having just murdered a man, he was in an awful situation and needed all the help he could get. He wasn't in a position to ask questions. He dutifully came back with the cleaver, but before he could find out what she wanted to do with it, Hannah Mary sent him away again. She told him to return later that afternoon. This next part she'd do all on her own. All alone now, Hannah Mary took the meat cleaver to Gaines's neck. She slowly began to saw his head off. After it fell to the ground, she did the same thing to his arms, then his legs, until finally all that was left of her ex-lover was a bloody torso. Now, we don't actually know with 100% certainty that Hannah Mary did this herself. There's a possibility that Wilson helped or that he did all of it for her. However, the leading authority on this case, historian Callie Nicole Gross, notes the possibility that Hannah Mary committed this part of the crime on her own. Before we continue with Hannah Mary's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Corpse dismemberment is extremely rare, even in violent homicides. According to the Journal of Forensic Sciences, when it does occur, the perpetrator usually knows the victim. That's because such a heinous crime generally requires an intense motivation not found in assaults made on strangers. George Wilson had no emotional connection to Gaines. The two were neighborhood acquaintances at best. This makes it highly unlikely that Wilson would feel the need or the urge to dismember his corpse. 
But Hannah Mary had an intense connection to Gaines. She'd been in love with him and then felt deeply betrayed when he left her for another woman. Her rage had prompted her to slice his cheek with a razor and even try to poison him. This was her chance to take her wrath out on Gaines one more time, even though he was already dead. Professors Ronald Holmes and Stephen Holmes elaborate even further on this type of aggressive mutilation. Citing the two professors, criminal psychologist Dr. Erica Hutton explains that dismembering a victim illustrates an extreme notion of abhorrence towards the victim, psychologically dismissing their existence and disregarding them as being of any value whatsoever. This fits with how Hannah Mary likely felt about Gaines. It wouldn't be enough for him to be dead. For this level of hatred, she'd need to take it a step further. But there were also practical reasons behind dismembering Gaines. She had to get rid of the remains before her husband got home from work, and she'd have to do it in broad daylight. She wrapped up the limbs, head, and torso separately in thick brown wrapping paper. When Wilson returned, she handed over the packages and told him to dispose of them. Whether in this version of events, Wilson put two and two together, we don't know. All we know for certain is that Hannah Mary was intent on covering up her tracks. After all, she was no longer just a witness. She'd committed her own crime, one that would likely be viewed as even worse than what Wilson had done. While Wilson was disposing of Gaines's limbs and head, Hannah Mary handed her former lover's clothes to the young girl across the street and asked her to pawn them. Then she cleaned up the house. She righted the furniture and scrubbed the blood-stained floors until nothing seemed amiss. But she still had the bloody torso to get rid of. At 6.27 that night, Hannah Mary boarded the train at Broad Street Station. Fellow passengers saw a woman carrying a large bundle under her arm, wrapped with the same thick brown paper that she'd used to pack up Gaines's limbs and head. She took a seat on the train and opened the window, letting the cool winter air wash over her. The conductor, Frank Swain, noticed Hannah Mary for one reason in particular. She'd pulled down the window in the middle of winter. Swain asked if she felt ill. She told him she'd been in the hospital and just needed some fresh air. He left, but kept an eye on her the rest of the way. Her ticket had stated she was going to Cornwell's Heights, but instead she got off in Eddington. It was yet another red flag. Swain tried to help her off the train, but she was insistent he not touch her belongings. He watched her go, unable to shake the feeling that something about her was odd. From there, Hannah Mary made her way through Eddington. She appears to have planned on leaving the bundle somewhere on Brock Farm, where she'd been employed the year before, but she soon got turned around and couldn't quite remember how to get there. When she found herself outside a large estate, she decided to ask for directions. 
She put her bundle down on the side of the road, out of sight, and then headed toward the residence. She hoped a servant might answer her knock, but instead, Mrs. Stroop, the lady of the house, opened the door. Hannah Mary asked for directions to George Brock's estate. She claimed she was on her way to see another servant who she had known while working there. Mrs. Stroop not only offered directions, she insisted on sending one of her own servants to take Hannah Mary there. But an escort was the last thing Hannah Mary wanted. She left and hurried back to get the bundle before anyone could see it. Then she took off, only to discover that Mrs. Stroop's servant was right behind her. A few paces up the road, Hannah Mary stepped into a dark yard. She waited as the servant walked past her, realized he'd lost her, and then turned around. When she was certain he'd doubled back to the Stroop estate, Hannah Mary went on her way. She wasn't going to make it to Brock Farm. She'd have to find another place to dump the package. She soon found the perfect place, a deserted pond. Hannah Mary walked onto a bridge that spanned the pond and tossed the bundle over the edge, but it missed the water. It landed instead on the bank. She was about to go and push it into the pond when she heard a buggy approach. She quickly ran off the bridge and over to the side of the road. It passed without seeing her. But now Hannah Mary didn't want to take any chances. She left the bundle where it was and rushed back to the train station. She likely jumped on the 948 train back to Philadelphia. When she got home around 11 o'clock, her husband, John Tabbs, barely acknowledged her return. He'd likely gotten home from work hours before, but he was used to her being out late at night. Just as she expected, he didn't ask any questions. The next morning, February 17, 1887, a local man discovered the brown paper package and inside of it, the bloody torso. Silas Hibbs was no expert, but he could tell the victim hadn't been dead long. The coroner, William Silbert, and the coroner's physician, Evan Groom, were first on the scene. But word had quickly spread throughout the town. Already there were looky-loos peering on, trying to get a glimpse of the gruesome remains. It was the most exciting thing to occur in Eddington in some time. As titillated as they were by the sordid details, they were also horrified. Until the killer was caught, it was possible that he would strike again and in the exact same way. Up next, authorities try to understand why the torso was dumped in Eddington and who might be responsible. Hi, listeners. To celebrate our favorite month, Parcast Network is releasing a slate of new shows leaning into all things spooky and spine-tingling. And now we're bringing you an original series called Superstitions, featuring the origins and impacts of our most unusual beliefs and the stories of those who dare to defy them. 
Every week on Superstitions, hear a new drama that illustrates the eeriness and unlocks the mysteries of humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Like holding your breath while passing a cemetery so you don't wake the dead and make them jealous, or carrying the foot of an animal known to have an evil eye, or using iron to keep away the devil. They may seem mystical or even completely illogical, but one thing is certain you ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more ParCast shows, search ParCast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of spooky October programming to enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On February 17, 1887, a carpenter discovered the gory remains of 24-year-old Wakefield Gaines sitting on the bank of a pond. Authorities swept the area and searched the water. Only two pieces of evidence turned up, a shawl strap and a blood-stained piece of calico cloth. They'd need to find more, but in the meantime, police developed a time frame. A local man said that he'd seen the shawl strap on the bridge at 1 a.m. the night before. Whoever dumped the torso must have done it before then. Meanwhile, town members gathered in the Eddington General Store to discuss the case. Some of them outright suspected their neighbors of being the killer. Theories flew, but besides the fact that the killer was unknown, there was another intriguing aspect to this case. Nobody could determine the race of the victim. Some thought he was white, others thought he was black, with some speculating that he could be Chinese or Italian. The ambiguity was of deep concern to the white townspeople. To them, the man's race was key to understanding who the next victim would be, and who the murderer likely was as well. If the torso turned out to belong to a white man, then they believed this meant that the perpetrator was white, and that his next victim would be too. However, if the torso belonged to a black man, then they believed the next victim would also be black, and the murderer was likely black as well. Their thought process was questionable, to say the least, and undoubtedly affected by racism, but it wasn't without merit. During that time period, according to historian Callie Nicole Gross, the majority of black crime, like white crime, was intra-racial. By Friday, February 18th, the day after the torso's discovery, at least some of the authorities were convinced that the victim was indeed black. This in turn led to a higher scrutiny of black people in the area. Every person of color was a suspect. 
Then, on Saturday, stories surfaced about a black woman traveling by train with a suspicious package the night before the torso was discovered. Based on the description, the size and shape of the package matched what had been found at the pond, and since the authorities were now looking for a black perpetrator, it all seemed to fit. Conductor Swain told police about his encounter with 35-year-old Hannah Mary Tabbs. Although he hadn't managed to get her name, he remembered she had told him that she was headed to Brock Estate. Then Mrs. Stroop came forward. She mentioned that she had encountered a woman Wednesday night who'd asked for directions to Brock Farm. So police made their way to the Brock property, where they interrogated the owner, George Brock, and his employees. There were no black women currently working at the farm, but there had been one the previous year who'd gone by the name Mary Shepherd and sometimes Mary Tab. She'd also come to the farm with her niece, Annie Richardson. The police set their sights on finding this Mary, whoever she was. They weren't yet convinced that she could be the killer, but they certainly thought she might be involved. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, Hannah Mary was trying to stay a step ahead of the police. By Sunday, she'd seen the news of the torso in the paper. The article had also named her as a former employee at Brock Farm. The report didn't go so far as to implicate her as an official suspect, but the mere mention of her name made her uneasy. Hannah Mary was desperate to know what was going on, but first she felt she needed to establish her innocence. So the next day, she went to visit Jane Cannon, Wakefield Gaines's sister. It was a bold move. Jane was less than pleased to see Hannah Mary, aware that she'd assaulted her brother only a short while before, but she heard Hannah Mary out. Hannah Mary proceeded to tell Jane that she thought Gaines might be mixed up in the mysterious torso case, that he might even be the victim. She was going to go down to Eddington to try to figure it out, but she wanted to come to Jane first. Maybe Hannah Mary came to Jane because she identified the woman as her biggest obstacle. If she convinced Gaines's sister that she was clueless about what happened to him, then surely she could avoid anyone else's potential suspicion. But Jane didn't buy any of this for a second. After Hannah Mary left, Jane went straight to the Philadelphia authorities. She spoke to Chief Francis Kelly and told him she thought Hannah Mary had something to do with her brother's disappearance. While Jane was talking to the police, Hannah Mary got back on the train to Eddington. She arrived essentially unnoticed. In town, Hannah Mary asked around about the case. She even stopped in at the Vandergrift General Store and listened to the townspeople's gossip. Though she was the subject of discussion, no one tied the quiet woman in the back of the store to the mysterious lady who'd been on her way to the Brock estate. 
Hannah Mary's decisions to speak to Jane and to show up in Eddington were risky, to say the least. But many criminals feel the effects of overconfidence, which gives them the false conviction that they can act without getting caught. In this case, Hannah Mary was displaying what Professor Thomas Loughran, lead author of a February 2011 paper written for Columbia Law School, calls the better-than-average effect. This type of overconfidence occurs when someone believes that they're better and more adept than everyone around them. Most people in her position would be panicking, but Hannah Mary, who was accustomed to her violent abuses going unchecked, went out of her way to get inside information on the case. She wanted to know how close the cops were to naming her as a suspect. It didn't matter that she could have been recognized at any moment, either by another servant who worked with her at Brock Farm or someone she had encountered Wednesday night. She was confident that she could maneuver her way out of any situation. But it didn't come to that. After poking around for a few hours, she was satisfied that the constables still didn't suspect her. So she boarded the train back to Philadelphia. But the city police were also working the case, thanks to Jane Cannon's suspicions. When Hannah Mary stepped off the train at Broad Street Station in the city, Philadelphia detectives were waiting for her. She had been caught, and she couldn't talk her way out of it. Detectives took her to a holding cell where she denied any involvement in Gaines's disappearance, but the police didn't believe her. That night, they gathered up several of her acquaintances, anyone who might be able to act as a character witness for the mysterious woman. Most of the people who were brought in denied having anything to do with her. But her husband, John Tabbs, had something to say. He told them about her affair with Wakefield Gaines. He also said that she had not returned home Wednesday night until 11 p.m., which fit in perfectly with the timeline already established by police. The police also brought in Conductor Swain. He quickly identified Hannah Mary as the woman he had seen on the train Wednesday night. With each piece of new evidence, the authorities grew more certain that Hannah Mary was involved, and Hannah Mary grew more desperate. She knew things didn't look good for her. Although police still hadn't officially ID'd the torso, they were convinced that Gaines was the victim, and they knew about her affair with him, which gave her motive. They knew about her confrontation with him two weeks earlier as well, which showed she was capable of violence. And they knew that she had been absent from her home Wednesday night, which gave her opportunity. Hannah Mary remained in custody overnight, running through her options. She hadn't actually killed Gaines. She'd only witnessed the crime. If she hadn't been so eager to exact her own revenge on his body, she wouldn't be in this position at all. Now, she needed to figure out a way to get herself out of this mess. By the next day, she was willing to talk. 
Hannah Mary confessed that she was present for the murder, but that George Wilson had committed the crime and chopped up Gaines's body. She had only helped him cover it up, the helpless woman embroiled in a gruesome crime. Her confession was everything the detectives wanted. It explained her involvement, but it also played into their internalized beliefs that a woman could never be solely responsible for such a heinous act. A man had to be involved in this kind of dirty work, and Hannah Mary was more than happy to offer up Wilson to satisfy them. The police wasted no time. At 7 p.m. on February 22nd, they arrested George Wilson at his home. He denied having any involvement in the crime or even any knowledge of it. The authorities didn't listen too closely. They already believed Hannah Mary's side of the story, and they were inclined to believe a married woman who had an impeccable work history with white employers over an 18-year-old black man. George Wilson, on the other hand, didn't possess the same persuasive skills that Hannah Mary had used to her advantage. If it was his word against hers, no one was going to listen to him. Up next, Hannah Mary and George Wilson face the courtroom. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. After an ill-fated attempt to cover her tracks... 35-year-old Hannah Mary Tabbs was apprehended by Philadelphia police on February 21, 1887. She spent the night in a holding cell denying any knowledge of Wakefield Gaines's murder before claiming that she was merely an accessory to the crime. The real perpetrator responsible for both the killing and the dismemberment was 18-year-old George Wilson. After the police arrested him, both Wilson and Hannah Mary spent the night in filthy and vermin-infested holding cells. Hannah Mary wept throughout the night. At one point in his own cell, Wilson reportedly suffered a seizure. Still, the next morning, February 23, 1887, both Hannah Mary Tabbs and George Wilson attended their arraignment. Then they were sent back to county jail to await their formal hearing the following week. 
Later that afternoon, Wilson offered a partial confession to authorities. According to his account, he did encounter Gaines at Hannah Mary's house. He said he and Gaines got into an argument and Gaines hit him first. Then Wilson fought back, hitting the other man over the head with a chair. Though he stated it wasn't his intention, it seems as though this hit may have killed Gaines. But according to Wilson, he left after he dealt the blow to Gaines's head, and when he came back, Hannah Mary handed him a package to dispose of. The detectives were skeptical, but then Wilson said he could prove his story. He could bring them to the spot where he'd left the limbs and head. Wilson led the police to the Callow Hill Street Bridge that very afternoon. Despite his insistence that it was the place where he dropped off the body parts, the cops didn't find any remains. They did, however, find some calico cloth remnants, just as they had found at the pond with the recovered torso. Maybe Wilson was telling the truth after all. While the police searched the area, Wilson talked to the reporters who had gathered on the scene. He told them that he hadn't intended to kill Gaines and maintained that he had no part in the dismemberment. However, when the police searched his house later that day, they found Wilson's bloody pants and a bloody meat saw. This erased any misgivings. They were positive. Wilson was suspect number one. Wilson's friends and family hired attorney George Costa to help clear his name. Costa immediately found people willing to testify to Wilson's alibi. He was working during the time of the murder and could not have been involved. Wilson's employers swore that he had been working with them in their store at the time and day in question. They even said a mail courier had delivered a letter directly to him right around the time of the murder, so they could be sure that he hadn't left. But even with his lawyer's help, the authorities were still convinced Wilson was the perpetrator. Panicking, Wilson knew he had to do something, so he changed his story. Now he claimed that he had been tortured by the police into giving a false confession. From then on, the defense maintained that Wilson had been coerced, first by Hannah Mary and then the police, when really he was innocent of everything. On Monday, February 28, 1887, Hannah Mary and George Wilson returned to court for a second hearing. Reporters packed themselves into the room, determined to get a glimpse of the alleged criminals. Hannah Mary's black eye was still prominent, but she kept her gaze trained on the ground, determined to act subdued. Wilson, meanwhile, looked around everywhere, soaking it all in. To those in the courtroom, he didn't appear to grasp the seriousness of the situation yet. Over the course of the hearing, both the prosecution and defense presented their evidence. A six-man jury had to determine whether enough evidence existed to warrant a trial. And in the event it did, they would also need to determine how to charge each defendant. 
A coroner's inquest was held on March 2, 1887. Both Hannah Mary and George Wilson would go on to face the grand jury and eventually criminal prosecution. Wilson was charged with the murder of Wakefield Gaines, while Hannah Mary was charged as a witness and accessory to the crime. They remained in custody for two months before the grand jury convened. In an era where most trials were over and done within a few days, the prolongment of this legal battle only led to its infamy throughout town. Locals had weeks on end to discuss their theories and predictions. Finally, on May 16th, both Wilson and Hannah Mary entered their pleas of not guilty, although they would be tried separately. Wilson was up first, and Hannah Mary was the star witness against him. The trial began that same day with a jury of 12 white men ready to hear the arguments. The district attorney began by saying that seldom in history was one called upon to try a case in which there were so many elements of brutality. And then he threw out a twist for the spectators. He claimed that they would show that Wilson had dismembered Gaines while Gaines was still alive. It was an obscene claim and one that was difficult to prove. Still, the very possibility of it was enough to unsettle people. The prosecution brought out a slew of witnesses, most of whom had testified at the inquest. But then it was time for Hannah Mary to testify. She came up to the stand and took a seat. She calmly told the jury that Wilson had killed and dismembered Gaines. She claimed Wilson had then instructed her to throw the remains into the water. Hannah Mary said just enough to admit that she was complicit in disposing of the remains, while also implying that she had only done it out of her womanly duty to serve a man. She managed to paint herself in a sympathetic manner, towing the line just so. She remained even-tempered and deferential to the white lawyers and jury around her. Rather than going against the cultural grain as she normally did, she played into the expectations of the men around her. This was a smart play. According to psychologist Evelyn Mader, Jurors have a tendency to default to their unconscious gender biases. They're more likely to associate male defendants with characteristics like aggression and toughness, while assigning nurturance and compassion to females. And if a man and a woman are charged with similar crimes, as was the case here, the jury often finds it more plausible that the male defendant committed the offense than the female. Hannah Mary kept up the act when the defense cross-examined her as well. She sidestepped the more illicit parts of her life and completely avoided admitting to the affair. Instead, she claimed she and Gaines were just good friends. After all, she was a married woman. And whenever the defense tried to push her into a corner, she evaded giving straightforward answers by tacking on the disclaimer, to the best of my knowledge, 
to any response. Attorney George Costa tried to course-correct after Hannah Mary's testimony. He claimed Wilson's confession was false and pinned the entire crime on Hannah Mary instead. She was, after all, the only reason Wilson was arrested. It was her word that had landed him in jail. After that, it was time for the final play. Costa would prove Wilson's airtight alibi, the delivery of the letter to him at work. But when the mail courier got on the stand, he admitted that he hadn't handed a letter directly to Wilson. He had simply given a letter for him to his boss. It was devastating testimony for Wilson's case. The jury deliberated for two hours, a short time by today's standards, but more than double the average time for that period. Then everyone was called back to the courtroom to hear the verdict. The jurors found George Wilson guilty of first-degree murder. His defense motioned for immediate appeal. A month later, a new trial was granted, but by then, the prosecution had offered Wilson a plea deal. He could accept a second-degree murder charge and 12 years in Eastern Penitentiary Prison, or else face the jury again for an appeal that he'd probably lose. Throughout this all, Hannah Mary had been in county prison awaiting her trial. But after seeing how things turned out for Wilson, her lawyers advised her to also accept a plea deal of her own. So on September 28, 1887, 35-year-old Hannah Mary appeared before the judge and, per her agreement with the prosecution, pleaded guilty as an accessory after the fact. She was sentenced to two years, which was the maximum penalty for her crime. It turned out to be a smart move. In the end, she ended up serving only a little over half of that time. She was released on April 30, 1889. Her husband, John Tabbs, died just four days before she came home. She was out just in time to attend his funeral on May 1st. After that, Hannah Mary moved to Baltimore and lived with her brother and his wife for some time. She once again found domestic service work, and she lived off her wages and widow's pension for the next two decades. Just what else she did over those 20-some years is unclear. She was never arrested again. It's entirely possible that she cleaned up her life and lived the straight and narrow after her prison stint. Or perhaps she had just learned enough to not get caught again. Although not entirely verified, it appears that Hannah Mary married twice more after John Tabbs. Her second husband was likely a man with the last name Scott. We know this because on February 6, 1908, she married her third husband, James Anderson. On her marriage license, she was listed as Mary E. Scott. After marrying Anderson, she lived with him and a daughter, Lucy Scott, likely a daughter from her second marriage. 
But it seems that Hannah Mary was not entirely done with crime. Even if her more violent tendencies had been subdued, she was still engaged in petty theft. For at least eight years after her marriage to Anderson, perhaps even more if she'd been married to someone before, she continued collecting her widow's pension. Finally, in 1916, she informed the pensioner's office that she was married, as if it had only just happened. With that, Hannah Mary Tabbs faded from the records. As a black woman in the early 1900s, her life was largely unrecorded except for her marriages and crimes. And so we're left to wonder what happened to her after that. According to historian Callie Nicole Gross, there are a number of women with the name Mary E. Anderson who died in the Baltimore area between 1915 to 1950, including one who was laid to rest in Anne Arundel County, the place of Hannah Mary's birth. It would be gratifying to think that her life came as full circle as that, but just like some of the more sinister parts of this case, we will likely never know the full truth. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Hannah Mary Tabbs, amongst the many sources we used, we found Hannah Mary Tabbs and the Disembodied Torso, A Tale of Race, Sex, and Violence in America by Callie Nicole Gross, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to follow Superstitions for new episodes featuring our most unusual beliefs. Are they side effects of ancient folklore or truly the masters of our fates? Look closely and examine the writing on the wall. Superstitions airs every Wednesday, free on Spotify. 